Welcome to this episode of BeaverPod with Brad Hill. Hello everyone, welcome to episode two of this Beaver podcast. I'm Brad Hill and I'm running this podcast because I'm really interested and I hope you guys are too, to find out what makes us tick and what makes the guests tick. So the whole idea behind this podcast was that I was really interested to um, talk to, to people that work within the profession and try and understand a little bit more how they've navigated their way through their careers and how they manage themselves on a day-to-day basis so that they can bring their best selves um, to the workplace. So guest number two um, needs no introduction. Um, She really has had a huge impact on the equine profession. Um, That's Maddie Campbell. She is ex-Beaver president, 2010. She's... um, uh, had a, uh, a huge role in equine stud medicine. She's certainly been a mentor of mine. Um, there's many a time that I've been stood um, sort of scratching my head about a mare that's in front of me and I've got on the phone to Maddie and she's always been uh, extremely um, informative and, and very willing to, to pass on good sound advice. So she's she's got her uh, business down at Hobgoblins or she can correct me on that, but um, I know that that's still going well. And then she has many other um, fingers in pies. So I've got her book in front of me, Animal, Animals, Ethics and Us. And I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to, uh, to buy that book because I, I think it's, it should be part of everyone's library if you're a vet in practice. Um, and then the list goes on really with Maddie. So we've crossed paths um, because I'm not in clinical practice. We've crossed paths uh, at a university level. So she does a lot of the Royal Vet College. And, and now she's got a small role at uh, the University of Nottingham. So welcome, Maddie, to this podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, so I'm just going to set, set uh, the scene. I'm sat at my laptop, which is basically where I spend quite a lot of the time, um, which is my office at home. So, so where are you, Maddie, so that the listeners can um, get an, uh, an, an image of where you're at or where you are? So I... I like you're in front of my laptop where I've been working for the best part of a year now, a lot of the time, certainly all of the university stuff obviously has been online. Um, yeah, down in East Sussex, which is where my practice is. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I think we're, we're so used to our, our space around us now, it's going to be difficult to, uh, to go back into the office. Um, Maddie, we're going to start by... Um, by looking at your career I mean there are so many career highlights but I want to take you right back to um, uh, to where it all began for you so if we go back to the point of graduation um, where did you graduate from and and how did you decide where to start your career? So I graduated from the Royal Veterinary College um, and I'd, I'd always been interested in horse um, breeding. I didn't come from a horsey family at all. I come from a London family, actually, although weirdly, years later, I discovered that my great-grandfather had been a Russian horse breeder, but I didn't know that, And um, but always loved horses and, you know, rode at the local riding school in southeast London, so I was kind of always, I suppose, going most likely towards the equine route as I went through college, and I was really lucky because in those days, there was a very 
uh, active obstetrics department at the RDC with Professor David Noakes and, and Professor Gary England. Um, and so, you know, I had the opportunity to become very involved in the stud medicine side of it as I went through the equine elective program. Um, and then having qualified, uh, actually went to Australia um, for a, a winter and spent some time working on a voluntary basis with Angus McKinnon there. So that was fantastic and just learned heaps. Uh, came back, did about a year in just general practice here, um, and then went back to do a uh, equine reproduction PhD. Wow. So, so you you said that you didn't come from a particularly horsey background. Um, did you ever feel that um, you were disadvantaged at vet school? Did you sort of feel that you looked around and thought, "Gosh, there's lots of horsey." girls and boys and and they've they've all spent you know hours in the pony club or hours on the hunting field or doing all sorts and I, I haven't had that opportunity so maybe I I'm not going to be able to fulfill that role in equine practice because I'm not horsey enough yeah no not really because um although my family wasn't horsey at all they were incredibly kind and spent a lot of time kind of driving me around at weekends so I could go and you know visit friends and stuff so I have had a pony um from when I was about 14 onwards um and the deal was when I got the baby that it had to be sold so I could concentrate on my O-levels when of course the O-levels came and the parents were as attached to the pony as I was and so the pony just kind of got kept without any more being said about it and then eventually I got a horse and in fact the horse came with me when I originally went to university and then came with me when I did my veterinary degree so um no I didn't feel disadvantaged on the horse side I certainly was aware of that on the farm animal side being a kind of Londoner um, you know, and I, I didn't, I just, I always, you know, I love farm animal practice, but I always felt that I didn't, I wasn't kind of seated in it, you know, and it would be difficult probably to forge a career that way. I remember a great occasion yeah, when I was I, on seeing practice and I said to, said to the farmer, oh, you know, it's a really lovely looking sheep. It was a really beautiful sheep. And the farmer looked at me and said, it's a goat love. And I thought maybe I shouldn't go into farm animal practice. Yeah, and I think we we see that a lot in um, certainly at, at universities. We we um, we see a lot of students coming in which haven't had um, an opportunity to spend time uh, in an in an equine environment. Um, and like you said, uh, you know they don't feel overly comfortable. A bit like you didn't feel overly comfortable in that sort of farming environment. Is there any? sort of advice do you think that you could give mm. to students who feel that you know they're not they don't quite fit in I mean I think you shouldn't be put off by it you know even if by the point at which you arrive at vet college you haven't had that experience people are generally very kind and very happy you know to give students who are interested a bit of a helping hand so you know if you think you might want to kind of go down the equine route then just seize every opportunity to go and spend time at different setups and in different types of equine establishment and you know make the most of it and uh, particularly now you know there's a lot of chat within the equine industries isn't there about kind of opening up access and increasing diversity and all of those kind of issues so I, I you know I think it's a much more open place than it used to be probably. Yeah I'd, I'd like to think that the sort of you know the options and the community is opening up more so that you know we're encouraging everyone from every background to to get involved with the species that they want to so there shouldn't be any barriers to that yeah, um, absolutely. was there was there a point when you were on the vet course that you b 
became more interested in in reproduction so you know what was that sort of moment or you know was it a light bulb moment were you in a practical say in year two and I don't know looking at the anatomy of the mares something or or I mean you know what, what was it that made you think I want to I want to make sure that I'm responsible for breeding the best foal ever I mean you know was it that light bulb moment what what was it it was exactly a light bulb moment I mean my mum always said to me they should just do what interests you most and I think um you know all of us have parts of the BVET med course or the you know the veterinary undergraduate course which we find more interesting than others don't we just naturally and you know that was always a part I found interesting and I had I was interested in horse breeding kind of more broadly than just the veterinary context anyway before I ever got to vet school and then I was incredibly lucky you know at that time at the RBC we did have fantastically good teaching in equine reproduction from Prof Notes and, and Gary England and so you know that I suppose just kind of made me even more interested and it, it was a bit of a toss-up really the, the two things that interested me most were equine reproduction and dermatology and I you know had to kind of go one way or the other at the end. Yeah and I, I, you've mentioned two points there which I think are interesting you know, you you came with that um, sort of uh, idea that you you were interested in breeding um, before almost before you were at vet school. So so what is it about breeding? What what what, what is it that kind of excited you? It, you know, before you even started on that journey through vet school, why what is it? Oh gosh, good question. I I mean, I you know, I suppose it's just the loveliness of having foals around. You know, which we could kind of all appreciate. Um, you know, and then I suppose it's the excitement of, you know, what that foal's going to become and, um, you know, just the, the chance to see them develop and kind of make a few plans and, you know, the interest of crossing different bloodlines and, you know, following their progeny and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, um, I love, I mean, I think we all uh, agree that, you know, foals are, um, I mean, you know, cute doesn't really come close there. Uh, I think we all sort of go slightly weak at the knees when we see foals. Um, having bred a few myself, I they, they certainly look um, the cutest at that stage. Um, but I think that crystal ball effect, that that idea that you don't know what you're going to get, and then it's every breeder's dream to um, to see that foal go on and fulfil its potential, and then you know the challenge is sort of mixing those bloodlines. So I, yeah, I can see there's a great pull and interest there. Um, you talked about role models in in your yeah, teaching exactly. so so you know you mentioned gary england and, and um and the impact that they they had on you so um have you then sort of tried to mirror those role models in your teaching now do you think well you know the impact they had on me i now want to have that impact on the next generation i mean what what were the attributes that made them great role models oh gosh i mean i would aspire to do so I, you know, I would aspire to be as good as either of them were, were and are as educators. You know, they they've both just given so much to so many of us. Um, but I mean, I I think they were they were and are both a combination of um, just you know amazing levels of knowledge, but very practical applied knowledge, not kind of ivory tower knowledge, and then just being really accessible. Um, you know, when they were teaching us. Yeah, and I think that accessibility um, and feeling like we're all on the same sort of level, if that sort of makes sense, so that, you know, we are approachable and um, and we can engage with our students um, is really important because I think that's kind of how you um, sort of 
continue to develop that interest is is by developing that rapport or relationship with your um educator so so yeah i certainly think that's something i try and um, emulate in in my teaching so so when you graduated you said that you went to australia is that is that like the the done thing for for stud i feel like you know anyone that's got any interest in stud work really needs to go to australia is is that is that what you would suggest and is is that kind of you know why you did it because that's the best place to go I mean, it's, it's certainly a route that a lot of friends have have done i actually did it for a slightly different reason was i was already married by that time because i'd done a different degree first and my husband actually got a job in australia for six months and so i kind of wanted to go to australia with him and, and in fact it was gary england who said to me well this is the place you should go and get some experience and he very kindly made an introduction for me so as I said, I went on a voluntary basis, but you know it was time so well spent in in terms of what I learned. And what were the kind of um, you know if you had to try and sort of crystallise some of the the things that you learned out there, what would be the things that you that have stuck in your memory? So the I mean the the first thing I remember was Angus McKinnon um saying right you're not going to use an ultrasound scanner for the first month you're here because you have to be able to palpate well. Um, and so, you know, that was really good. It really taught me uh, to palpate. And then it was the, the volumes of mares coming through the clinic or the numbers of mares coming through the clinic, they were huge. And they had a herd of about 60 recipient mares for embryo transfer. Uh, so it was just a phenomenal opportunity to get involved uh, with all of that. And, you know, it was in the relatively early days then of non-surgical embryo transfers. So there was a lot of clinical research going on at the practice. and. Yeah, it was just a, an amazing opportunity, really. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like they were slightly ahead of their time or, or almost leading then at that stage in, in terms of equine. Yeah, he was, absolutely, yeah. 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 And, and then did you come back from that? I mean, it sounds like you were, you were quite an early stage in your career to be absorbing all that information. So how did you then... Um, take that forward when you came back and 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 how did you then think right well you know I, I want to create something now over here so so where was that how did you put together that next step uh, well I I did spend a lot of time um traveling quite a lot actually to go to conferences and especially the American conferences and um, some of them had really good and still do have really good wet labs you know running alongside for example the AAP conference you could go a day early and do a reproduction wet lab and you know I used to go to the Society for Society for Theriogenology uh, conferences and stuff like that so yeah in those years I did I spent quite a bit of time and quite a bit of money um, you know traveling to the international conferences where all the most up-to-date stuff on equine reproduction was being presented but also some reason you know some kind of how to do kind of stuff as well um, you know and then I was very lucky because then when I went back to the RVC to do my PhD we at that time they still had a obstetrics pony herd there and so I had the chance you know to start putting some of that into practice. Wow and and, and was this all while you were married I mean it did I feel like this, I've got this image now in my mm. head of you sort of you know propelling your career forward and you know traveling over to the states and sort of <laughs> building up that. this bank of knowledge and then and then going and doing a phd and i mean did your husband just go in with you or did you lead these sort of separate lives i mean how how does that work uh, i mean professionally we've always led extremely separate lives yeah he, he kind of does his thing and i do mine i suppose yeah 
And I think that's great because I think it, you know, you obviously n neither of you ever felt like you had to compromise and, and you kind of pursued your career ambitions. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah, and I just think that's a great sort of point to make because I think often, you know, you, you, particularly if you've got two very career-minded people, it's difficult for one or or for both of you rather to continue to 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 push forward. Um, so your your PhD then did that sort of then add another layer to your to your knowledge around reproduction? How did that sort of where did that fit? Yeah, no, it, it did. I mean, you know, it was just a wonderful opportunity to spend. Um, three years really doing something in detail and it, it was a very deliberately a very um, kind of whole animal type PhD it, it was a PhD on M mode ultrasonography of the contractions of a mare's uterus so I just spent three years uh, scanning mare's uteri essentially um, so you know it was a, again a, a great opportunity to improve my skills there and, and I, again I was extremely lucky because whilst I did that I was able to um, simultaneously be training and preparing myself for the European college exam in animal reproduction and, and I did that just shortly after I finished my PhD I think. Gosh and then wh when when did hobgoblins start was that something then that you know was born out of the PhD and then your your qualification? Yeah all about the same time so um, I'm trying to go and think back of the order in which things happened but I think I uh, pretty much finished my PhD and had just started to get hobgoblins up and going kind of whilst I was writing that up um, and then I think I must have sat my ECAR exam soon after I started hobgoblins probably. Wow and um, and did you you know I know I know I keep probably coming back to this point but did you then go on and have a family or I mean how, you know it's this sort of juggling act did you sort of continue to juggle your work-life balance? Yeah, yeah not for quite a long while <laughs> yeah so I did so um well, it felt like not for quite a long while, but actually, I think I've, you know, um, yeah, set up the practice in 2003. And in fact, I did have my son in 2004. So, it, yeah, actually, it wasn't that um, long of a gap, I guess. Um, and you know, to go back to your point about two professional partners kind of not having to compromise, I, I agree with that, absolutely. But I think in practical terms, once there are kids involved, and actually, the reality is, there is some compromise just around, you know, the logistics and kid has to be picked up or you know taken there or is ill or whatever and, and I, you know I kind of think to you know to say that you can you know yes you could do it all and not take that into account is actually not very helpful I think you, you know once there's children involved then actually everyone has to be prepared to be flexible and pragmatic and compromise or it just doesn't work. And, and in that role then as a, as a working mum did you um, did you sort of uh, adopt that um, compromise the most because you, you because you were the mum and and that's what mums do or is that or is that an old fashioned thing now and you actually <laughs> worked more as a team because I know a lot of our friends they seem to have this sort of like you know tag team parent approach which is incredible they they keep their careers going so it's old fashioned to think that the mum needs to stay stay at home but what did you do? Yeah, well. I yeah, I mean, I mean, I was lucky because my practice is at home. So that, you know, realistically, that does make it easier because you can kind of pop in and out, and especially when you're your own boss. Um, but in in terms of, I mean, you know, I my parents both worked, so I had kind of very good role models there, you know, and, and my mum was an amazing role model in terms of her career, but my dad was also 
particularly for his time, actually an amazing role model in, in terms of kind of being, you know, happy for his wife to be going out doing all this stuff. And so I suppose I just grew up expecting that was how things would be. Um, so just um, thinking about Hobgoblins, because uh, obviously, you know, you started that, as you said, you were from home um, and you were managing to juggle um, being a new mum. Uh, was that a success right from the get-go? Or is that a practice that, that you started and then you had to manage and build up? What was the the business plan behind it? Uh, I mean, it's kind of not in a way for me to judge whether it's a success or not, I suppose. It's for others to judge. But, um, you know, it's certainly been something I've enjoyed enormously. And I've, I've been very lucky and over, over the years we've built a really uh, loyal client base and and so now you know this many years later I find I'm kind of inseminating you know the granddaughters of the mayor I originally inseminated for a client with the semen I froze from a stallion belonging to another client you know and and, and so you know it's it's really nice in that way it's it's all become um quite kind of familiar and I've been incredibly lucky to have a great team of um people you know working around me which has made all the difference in the world really yeah, I mean, it's lovely how you talk about that because it's um, it's almost like you know you've fulfilled that childhood dream. You know, you you've, you you can sort of join the dots of the the lineage, and you can say, well, I know that this stallion because you know I've used it before, and I perhaps know the owners, and I and I know the the the, the dam line, and and now you've kind of managed to get yourself in a position where you can sort of see um, the benefits of everything that you do, and you can almost trace you know your clients because you, you know them so well so um and, and I think that that's part of the fun of it. it is I was just going to say you were talking at the beginning about exactly what what makes us tick and and that is the fun of it a lot of the fun of it is the people obviously as well as the horses um you know but it's kind of interesting too seeing how um you know you can see characteristics that kind of run down bloodlines you know and you almost know how an animal is likely to react because you know that its mother did the same or its grandmother did the same or you know or nowadays I find when I'm freezing semen sometimes I'm kind of freezing the second or third generation of stallion semen I can take a guess at how well it's going to freeze you know because that's quite a heritable trait and I know what their sire's semen was like to freeze so you know all of that it is it's a really fun aspect of it and yeah I know and I feel yeah. really lucky you talk about um kind of childhood dreams and you know as I said, I was brought up in South London. I used to look out of my bedroom window and, and literally, you know, if I was in my bedroom and looked out the window, what I saw was a brick wall. Um, you know, you could look a bit further and see other things, but, you know, and now I can look out of my bedroom window and see my own horses grazing. And, you know, that to me is just wonderful. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it sounds amazing, you know, to, to sort of have got to that um, point. Um I just want to pick up a little bit about the ethics because I, I mentioned your book in the um, intro and um, I read it a few years back, Animal Ethics and Us, and I, and I do think it's a book that we should all read as vets in practice and I think it highlights and makes you think uh, deeper about some of the things that we perhaps um, uh, take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis in equine practice because I think you know daily we are dealing with ethical situations whether we're aware of it or not um you know the thing I teach a lot for equine behavior is about the three f's and, and Gemma Pearson's been brilliant at, at sort of um teaching that to a lot of the beaver members you know the freedom 
friends and forage and, and how important those three Fs are for horses. Um, and I know you talk about the five domains in your book. Um, I don't know if you just want to share with the listeners what the five domains are, um, because I think they're really interesting and I think they tie in a bit with those three Fs. Well, the five domains is, you know, that was a whole um, framework, really, which was developed by David Meller and, and his colleagues. So if anyone's interested, then they should definitely go and look up David Meller's work on the five domains. And he's just very recently, within the last six months or so, actually published a paper um, updating it. But it was essentially just um, an expansion of, you know, if we think way back to the five freedoms, and obviously they came out in relation to farm animals originally, and then kind of got um, translated somewhat into horses and, and other animals as well. And, and really what David did with the five domains model was he, well, two things. First of all, he, he added in a kind of a mental domain, if you like, like the animal's mental well-being. Um, and, the, and the other thing was that he also placed a strong emphasis on um, positive welfare as well as on assessing negative things. So on not only kind of saying, well, that's bad, but on concentrating on what we can do to make things better, you know, and, and on, on the interaction of the animal's physical well-being and, and psychological well-being across its lifetime. That's really you know, what, what has been new and very, very valuable about that model. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I pick up on what you say about mental well-being because I think it's such a phrase that we talk a lot now about um, in lo lots of aspects of society um, and we're so much more aware of that. And I think clients are more aware of their horses and mental well-being and, and, and I think that there, there is almost a growth in mm. behavioural issues um, surrounding horses. Um, and, and, you know, some of this may be comes through a, a lack of education about you know the basic needs of of the horses that we care for um or maybe it's the fact that we're more educated now and actually we've just moved on um and i know one of your areas of interest is um you know how we balance that horse human relationship particularly um, in terms of uh, sports horses and i know that you 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 know you're um doing some research around that um do you, where do you think we're at with sports horses and ethics? And do you think that, you know, we we have come a long way and, and do you think we should do more um, to make sure that we're not, um, you know, compromising welfare and, and perhaps, you know, ethically doing something that we shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's certainly an area in which the conversation has really opened up over the last few years. And, and that has been partly in, in response to kind of um, public unease, if you like, about the use of, of animals in sport. I mean, it's not just horses, of course, it's dogs as well. Um, and so part of it has been a kind of reaction to that, but I'm glad to say that a lot of it now is really quite proactive. And in fact, I've got a project running at the moment at the RBC, uh, which is funded by World Horse Welfare, which is developing an ethical framework for the use of horses in sport. And, and that's being done in consultation with stakeholders. It's very much, um, you know, kind of seated in, in industry across all of the equestrian disciplines. Um, you know, yes, yeah, so to try and establish ways in which we can proactively think about these ethical issues in order to make sure that we are always protecting equine welfare as best we can, really, because it seems to me that is, a, you know, the 
the basis for our continual justification for using animals in sport is that we have to be protecting welfare as best we can. Yeah, and how how important do you think um, you know professional riders are as role models? Because I think that you know um, certainly over the last few years, riders have been criticised and pulled up for overuse of the whip and um, it, it, and and those kind of more sort of you know public um, arenas if they've if they've not kind of treated the horse in a way that that you know the spectator expects them to be treated. But what, what what role do you think they have then in terms of making sure that um, they set the the benchmark for how horses should be treated? Because um, I think I think that's that's the that's a really important point. Yeah, they they very obviously do have a role in in the public domain. You know, that's what the public sees, whatever's on television or all over the papers, and so obviously that has an impact. But um, I think they also, you know, actually you can look at it kind of in a more positive way and say well riders have a really positive role to play as role models for other riders coming up behind them so you know someone who's um you know whose columns I always have enjoyed reading in the horse and hound is Anna Ross and I know she does this very actively with you know the riders the younger riders she trains um you know and it's it's exactly that which is is what's beginning to happen and what we need to happen more is is the kind of proactive discussion within the industry of the of the equine uh, ethical and, and welfare issues and just the fact you know we should think about them proactively and consider them and think about how the horse is feeling as you said you know and what's the psychological impact of us doing this rather than that and how might we be able to assess what's actually the best thing to do and you know all of all of those kind of conversations which are beginning to happen more and more which is great yeah and i think there will be uh, listeners um who will be thinking? Well, you know, is it is it my is it up to me to go out to my professional yard and which has maybe got a bunch of horses that have got stereotypies or they don't turn them out or you know they you know is it the role of the vet to be an educator and say well actually you know have you thought about I mean I yeah. used to use lickets quite a lot you know so I don't know if you've used them for scanning mares. I think it's it's difficult, but, you know, giving them a treat so that they can use that instead of slapping the twitch on. Is it up to the vet in practice to be making a, you know, making a stand on this? Yeah, I don't use lickets, but we always have food in the stocks. I mean, unless the mare has to be stated, we always have a bucket of food in front of them, you know, so that it's hopefully a not negative experience for them going in there, but, you know, something they don't mind doing too much. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, I do think it is actually. And um, the BVA in, in recent years, of course, has been very proactive in kind of promoting the role of vets as champions of animal welfare. And, and that was something which was started by Sean Wensley in, in his presidential year. And, and they've developed a whole strategy around it. And I do think it's a really important role for vets. You know, and we have, on the one hand, the education and the expertise and on on the other hand we're in the fortunate position as a profession of also having the trust of, of the majority of horse owners and in fact of the public so you know we're kind of ideally placed um to make an impact you know obviously in a um you know a, i'm trying to think of the right word in, in a in a kind of pleasant way which encourages people to think about things proactively you know rather than in a kind of laying down the law kind of way yeah and I, I I often found that if if I I was always a bit nervous about going down that route um with a client and but actually I think if you if you do offer some advice like 
something as simple as shall we just get her a bucket of feed um, instead of putting the twitch on actually a lot of clients are really receptive to that and they actually sort of look at you as if to say gosh you know um, we're pleased that you're thinking about the mental well-being of our horse rather than just you know looking for the quick fix so yeah. I know it's not easy and certainly in a professional environment it's very difficult but I, I actually think if you're brave enough to open up that conversation and you're often surprised by the reaction you get back from the client in a positive way I completely agree I mean I think you know clients like the rest of us you know they all we all appreciate someone showing interest in our animals and kind of taking a bit of time with them don't we and and the other thing I've found is that um actually my clients at least are, are really interested in research you know so if you have read something recently which makes you think well actually we should try this rather than that because it would be better for the horse and you kind of have a, a chat with the client about that I always find that they're really receptive to those kind of conversations yeah I think it sort of shows that you know you, you care and you're you've you, you're upskilling yourself and and you're you know bringing sort of the current knowledge to to their horse which I, I think clients really appreciate um, Maddie, we're going to move on to the next part of the, the podcast where we're going to talk uh, a bit about your three failures and, and hopefully expand on them a little bit more. Um, do you want to do you want to tell us about your first one? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was going to start by um, saying, which, you know, you will know as well as I because you work in equine reproduction too, that, you know, I think any of us who work in reproduction, in a way, we're kind of constantly beset by failures, aren't we? Because you know, so often things don't work and it's such an all or nothing game. You know, the mare's either pregnant or she's not, you know, the stallion semen either freezes or it doesn't, you know, and then, you know, sometimes it's kind of almost worse and, you know, the foal isn't born safely and the mare ends up aborting or, you know, something like that. So, you know, all of those in a way are failures and, you know, they happen every stud season and, you know, certainly... I think probably all of us who are, are, are vets are kind of haunted by the cases we can remember that really went, you know, horribly wrong. And, you know, I can certainly think in particular, of, you know, a placentitis case, which I'd been treating that, you know, just didn't respond adequately to the treatment, ended up having a horrible, horrible dystocia and abortion. And, you know, all of those kind of things are horrible is the reality and they do haunt you. But, you know, I suppose kind of what I've, what you learn from it is, is a, what you might have done differently in, in terms of clinical practice. And obviously you go away and ask others and, and try and learn from what you can read and what you pick up at conferences and all that kind of stuff. And then I suppose over time, you know, you learn to a certain extent, you know, that you can't beat yourself up about them all too much. And, you know, sometimes things, you just can't make everything perfect. You can only try your best sometimes, can't you? Yeah. And just picking up on that mare with placentitis, do you, do you know where you went wrong or where you think you failed in that case when you look back on it? I mean, I think I failed in the, in the sense that I didn't manage to prevent the mare from aborting despite treating it. Where I went wrong, you know, I, I asked several experts about, you know, afterwards and at conferences and stuff. And I mean, actually, I'm not sure there's very much differently I would I could have done. And, you know, and in, in a way that's the lesson to be learned I suppose you know sometimes you listen to experts you take the advice you do your very best and it still doesn't always work yeah and I, I think that's a you know that's that's 
the, the, one of the biggest, hardest lessons to learn as a new graduate is that um, whatever you do, sometimes you you just you can't um, you can't save you can't everything. Fix. Yeah, you can't fix, and that's no, exactly. the na- the nature of um, of the beast. Um, I, I mean, certainly thinking about reproductive work, I I know that. Um, you know, you scan that mare at 14 days or 12 days and your heart sinks because um, she's not in foal and you think, I don't understand why because I've done everything textbook. Um, well, what method do you have for, for, for kind of going again on the next cycle? Because I remember for years and years, I just thought, well, I'll repeat what I did and then there's a 50-50 chance that it will work this time. But then I remember, you know, an experienced stud vet saying to me, <laughs> Bradley, you, is, need, right. you know, I'm experienced stud vet saying to me, Bradley, you need to change something. You just don't repeat the same again. Yeah. I mean, so, sometimes you are just unlucky. I mean, you know, in natural reproduction, things don't get pregnant 100% of the time, even when everything is normally fertile. So sometimes you're just unlucky. Um, but... I mean, I, I find, and I suppose I've found it more and more as the years have gone on, is that often actually even like in the, the time of insemination or the days around that, you just know it hasn't gone exactly as you would have liked it to. You know, so for example, this, the semen you received didn't look as good as you would have liked it to, or, um, you know, you had a real battle with post-insemination endometritis, which you didn't manage to solve you know, in, in time and, and things. So I think you kind of have a hunch often, I think actually when you come to do the first scan about whether or not the mare's going to be pregnant. And so often, it, I suppose, in your mind's eye, you, you kind of already know what wasn't right on the last cycle and therefore you have already started to make a plan about what you're going to do differently this time, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's the key, isn't it, to, to make a plan about what you might do do differently. Yeah, and just attention to detail. Yeah, yeah, and making those good sort of notes and um, trying to look back over them. Yeah, I think that's really key, especially the ones that do surprise you. You know, the the ones that you were expecting to be pregnant and then they're not, then I do find it really useful to do what you've just said and, and look back through my notes and see if I can, can spot anything, you know, that might explain it and change what I did differently next time. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, just picking up on that first failure again, I, I think, you know, it's nice that you've sort of talked about the world of stud medicine in, in the fact that, you know, sometimes it is filled with more disappointments than it is successes and, and you know, you can't always control <laughs> all of those. It feels like that sometimes. Um, and, and therefore it can be quite a challenging, you know, role to fulfil. Um, how about your second failure, Maddie? Well, the, the second one... It's, kind of, it's not really a failure so much as a disaster, but it was kind of what led me into veterinary medicine to start with. So I, I thought I might mention that, which was because um, I hadn't intended to be a vet at all. Actually, I'd done a history degree and I'd actually done a lot of sport and I was going to have a year off and, and do sport seriously. And then very stupidly went skiing and completely wrecked my knee and, and was told I wouldn't be running at all for seven months. And so that was the point at, at which I kind of thought, oh, you know, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And well, you know, actually, if I could do anything, I'd just really like to be a vet. And kind of, so then went back and started quite a protracted process of having to do some science A levels in order to be able to apply to vet college and then kind of go through vet college. So, you know, I, I suppose 
the lesson I learned from that is, you know, in life, things don't always turn out, you know, as you had planned them. And, and sometimes you just have to kind of keep going. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, if you're lucky, things kind of come right in, in the end, I guess, and, and you maybe end up on a completely different path than, than you expected to be on. Yeah. And then do you ever do you ever sort of reflect back and think, gosh, I wonder if I'd done that history degree where I would be or do, are there any is there any sort of regret about what happened or do you really do see that failure in a positive light and actually you know almost failing forward because it's taken you on this journey now to, to success yeah no I tend to, I mean I do regret not having had the chance to do you know sport at a, at a higher level I'm sure I would have enjoyed that but um uh, you know that in terms of the kind of change of career direction I don't um regret that at all I see that entirely as kind of extraordinary opportunities that have opened up and you know and I quite often think to myself you know gosh I would never have met that person if you know if I hadn't had that complete change you know and I would never have learned about this interesting thing or I had the opportunity to do this or do that or so yeah no you know I think I've been incredibly lucky really yeah and and you you see you talk so humbly about your success and and the luck and um, you say it's all down to you know almost opportunities, and I'm sure a lot of that is. But do do you um you know do do you ever sort of feel that um you know you have reached this you know point where in a in a kind of fairly male dominated profession you're you're sort of a woman of power. Do you do you ever s- sort of see that as yourself, or do you <laughs> or or am, I, or am I saying something that actually really embarrasses no. you and you don't see that? I mean, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of laughing because I certainly don't view myself in, in that way at all. But I mean, the honest truth is, Brad, that, um, you know, it, it never occurred to me that it was going to be a disadvantage being a woman. And and I think the reasons for that, and funny enough, it's something I wrote about uh, recently in that blog for the BVA, which I think, you know, I've talked about before. Um, the reasons for that, I think, are, are that I had a, a, a mother who had worked and been very successful and a father who had facilitated that effectively and so you know at home it was never it would never have occurred to me that there was any difference between me and my brother for example and then I went to a co-ed school in southeast London which had exactly the same attitude and so it it simply never occurred to me that it would be a disadvantage to be um, a woman and you know and again I I, you know I realize now looking back and, and particularly now I have the chance to speak to students at the universities um you know, and, and to other women within the profession that I was incredibly lucky in that experience and that, you know, other women haven't had that same experience. Um, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's it's certainly something that those of us who have, you know, been lucky enough to do what we wanted to do need to be aware of, I think, and to try and make sure that the opportunities are being created for others. Yeah, and, I, and again, you know, you, you, I'm going to say it's your drive and determination, but you're going to say it's, it's your luck, but but you, you, you know, in two thousand and ten, you, you, you know, that luck or drive or both, I'm sure, took you to being Beaver president. And did you, did you ever feel when you had reached that stage, did you look around you and, and even then think, gosh, you know, there's not many sort of women here. This, you know, at the top, it's quite male dominated. Or, or, or did that not even cross your mind? No, never, never crossed my mind. Is the honest truth, and you know, kind of, I just felt again really lucky and really fortunate you know that that opportunity had had come up um you know which wasn't something you know I'd, I'd kind of anticipated and I've never never kind of 
had a plan as far as a career goes you know I'd, you know just opportunities open up and I kind of think well that would be an interesting thing to do and I'll you know throw my hat into the ring and you know then some things come off and others don't but um yeah you know it's the same thing really just surrounded by a lovely group of people um particularly uh Chris House who was the president before me and Deirdre Carson who was the president after me you know were a super team to work with and you know who I learned so much from um you know and yeah it was just a lovely time really real um and we we're coming towards the end, so we need to know about your third failure. So so what 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 is it? <laughs> yeah, so so I was thinking back, kind of, you know, over the years, as as you suggested, and um, you know, the thing I can definitely identify as a kind of you know objective failure over and above clinical cases was I twice failed my a certificate in I think it was certificate of equine stud medicine it was called in those days. This was the old fashioned. Uh, stud medicine certificate that the RCVS used to run yeah and that was demoralizing realistically and particularly the second time because I'd taken advice from a lot of senior colleagues you know and, and thought I'd kind of prepared properly and, and still didn't pass my case books part of it so that was the end of that um, and and normally I'm you know, I'm not normally a person who gives up I normally tend to kind of just try again and you know make a stronger effort but on that occasion, I did actually just give up after the second go because I couldn't really see what I could do any differently. And I, and I kind of diverted um, to doing the European uh, diploma instead. And, and so I, you kind of, you know, you asked in advance kind of what are the lessons you learn from these failures? Well, you know, I suppose the lesson was, you know, it's reasonable to try again, at least, you know, I think you should try again most of the time, but sometimes probably actually when I look back at it now, I think actually kind of trying a different approach then was the right thing to do. And, and, and you know, again, it turned out to be an opportunity because it opened up that whole kind of world of the European colleges to me. And that's something which I've got on to enjoy and become quite involved in. Yeah, brilliant. And a, and a nice way to sort of, um, you know, finish on those failures again about how, um, you know, one door closes and then another one opened and actually, um, you know, has, has took you on in a, in, a diff- in a kind of similar vein, but probably, you know, something that you've succeeded in. Um, so, so Maddie, when, when we, you know, go right back to the beginning of this podcast, it's, you know, what makes you tick? You, you seem to be hugely successful and, we've, and, and, and I see you as that, even if you don't see yourself as that. So, so what, what do you do in, in, you know, in terms of well-being and you know how do you make sure that every day is a successful day and um you know because I I think I'm trying to teach resilience now to the final year students and I'm not quite sure whether you can even teach that so who knows whether that that is going to have a benefit to them or not but what do you do to make sure that you wake up in the morning and think yes today's going to be a good day (laughs) I mean I, I think it's great that you are teaching that because it's not you know when I went through vet college it wasn't really something that was spoken about never mind taught and you know I think even if it's hard to teach just the fact people are aware of it I think has to be a good thing doesn't it and and, you know give them something to kind of fall back on so I think it's great that you're doing that um what do I personally do I still do a lot of sport I mean I still um cycle or run almost every day um I ride as often as I can um yeah those I mean those are the things that I really kind of do for myself in each day and and I try to make sure you know I've always got time in each day to do that even if it means I'm kind of 
in the barn in the dark on my bike on that turbo thing in the depths of winter but you know still I quite enjoy that because then that's kind of something I've done for myself in the day rather than just work yeah yeah and, and if you don't get to do that for whatever reason maybe you know things have got a bit hectic at work or um other things have got in the way do you notice a difference in your mood or self um if you've missed three days of doing your exercise Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm very grumpy. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it is this kind of old endorphin thing, isn't it? If you're used to exercising and you don't, you know, then unless you've kind of chosen not to do it, like on Christmas Day, you know, then that's fine. But, you know, if, you, if you're prohibited from, from doing it, then yeah, I do become quite grumpy. Yeah, and I think that's the important bit, isn't it? It's recognising that change in mood and, 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 and knowing then what to do about it and how to top up your resilience bucket and and what works for you um, and that's sort of what I try and teach the students yeah and I mean even yeah even you know and we all have days when you just wake up feeling a bit blurred don't you you know and just not feeling very chipper and you know if you if you know the thing that makes you feel better whether that's going for a run or going for a walk or you know even just having a hot shower or, or whatever you know then then that's good if you can identify that because then you've got something that might hopefully just swing your mood a little bit back towards the positive side yeah and um and hopefully then like you said sort of top you up a little bit um the the question i ask the students now which is really difficult and i'm going to ask you this is you know if you're in those high stakes high moments um you know in practice so it might be i don't know a falling so it's you know you've got to make big decisions in in a relatively short space of time because you're in a life and death situation and and maybe things aren't going to plan so um you know I can think back to euthanasia as well I've not managed to get the vein and then I thought well I've hit the artery and uh, any blood vessels better than none which is the, the wrong thought but how do you kind of control that sort of um sympathetic drive where your amygdala takes over and you 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 know how do you kind of slow yourself down and make that right decision and right call rather than just you know erratically doing something which is probably going to make the situation 10 times worse yeah no I know exactly that, that feeling you're describing when things just aren't going right and it kind of feels like it's all spinning out of control doesn't it but um I I mean I I suppose the way I do it and but you know, it may not be how you're feeling inside necessarily, but I suppose what I kind of say to myself is, look, you know, the, the clients are here and they're relying upon us to kind of stay calm and, you know, do something helpful. And, you know, generally speaking, certainly my experience has been, you know, if, if you can keep communicating with the client, then they stay on your side, basically, you know, and you just need to do what you can do to make the situation as good as it can be for everyone and you know that's all you can do is like we said earlier on you can't you know things don't always go perfectly that's the nature of veterinary practice um and you know i think if you if you know that at the start of each day and you know that you'll just do your best for your clients and for the horses and for yourself you know then hopefully that will just stop us kind of flying into too much of a panic when it all goes horribly wrong yeah, I, I picked up there on, on the fact that, you know, you, you have a, a little word to yourself. And I think a lot of the students will, will will be conscious of that. And they actually do reply to my question saying, you know, I almost have a, a chat to myself. And I think 
that's essential mm. because it kind of grounds you and then also keep communicating to the client because actually if the client clients will often recognize that the situation is challenging and and if they can help they will help you and then you then yeah. you become a team and ultimately you then you know like you said just do the best you can and if the best you can means that the horse has a um you know a, a swift a euthanasia then then that's the best out, out outcome um do, do, do you know what I mean I think it's about making yeah. sure that you take the pressure off I, I think you're absolutely right I think you know communicating with the clients is really key because it, you know if you're communicating they understand that you're concerned and you care and you're doing the best you can for their horse and and that is what's really important to them actually you know that you are doing the best you can um you know and that you care and, and you know i think if you can just keep the channels of communication open and then do the best you can in in clinical terms yeah that's all any of us can do isn't it really Brill, thanks, um, Maria. We've come to the uh, end of this. It's been incredible. Is there is there um, a final sort of take home message? I think we've sort of summarised a little bit towards the end, but is there any sort of top tips that you would give to to the listeners out there that might be driving around in between calls and maybe thinking, gosh, you know, being an equine vet in a pandemic is 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 not great, or you know, I, I need a little bit of a pick me up. What what would you say to those? To their vets, to those um, practitioners. Gosh, I mean, I'm not sure it's my place to be giving kind of top tips so called to anyone, but you know, it's been an incredibly hard year for everyone, of, of course. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, as far as that goes, I don't know what any of us could do except kind of hang on in there and you know hope that things improve and know that the profession generally, which has been great, has been supportive of each other. Um, you know, it, more broadly, I, I think probably. You know, as I think I mentioned before, you know, what, what my mum always said to me was just do what interests you in, in your work. And, you know, certainly that has, has stood me in good stead and seems to have opened up all these opportunities. And so, yeah, that's what I would say, I guess, just, you know, do what interests you and, and do your best at it. And and don't be afraid to ask for advice and help from others because it is a really supportive profession, ours. You know, and I have been hugely um grateful over the years for advice which i've received from others so you know yeah i think you know it, it, it's really nice the way that works within the profession isn't it that people support each other yeah i agree i think there's a real community and a family out there and um and and i think beaver is is, is good at promoting that so um and and just by you coming on here maddie you you know you will be yeah. inspiring people so so thank you so much and i think you you by doing this highlights to everyone out there that that um uh, although we can't really see each other at cpds and conferences etc you know everyone is out there and it, everyone is available to to support and and provide guidance uh, through a, a difficult uh, time so thank you very much and um uh yeah thank you to the listeners as well for tuning in to episode two and, and thank you brad for organizing all of these podcasts for everyone uh, thank you for inviting me and thank you for organising the series and I'll certainly look forward to your success. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.